Okay, let's pray and we'll jump in. Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, we bless you and praise you. We thank you for just your goodness and truth. Um, Lord, we pray for an end to the pandemic. We pray for peace in our culture. Uh, pray for our country. Uh, we pray for the church. Uh, Lord, we ask you to bless us. Uh, be with us tonight. Help us leave behind our anxieties, our fears, uh, and bless our, our time together. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. All right, everybody. So one of the reasons that, like people don't become Catholic is like Catholics don't say hello to other people. Like, it always helps if you do that. Okay. Um, lots to cover as always. So, but before we do that, it's always good to review last week. Can anyone tell me what did we do last week? What did we talk about? Talked about the fall, about how it disordered okay. the intellect. Okay, we talked about the fall, and then you have, right, you have the intellect, the will, and the passions, right? And that's what original sin is about. Original sin means that our souls are disordered because the lower power rebels against the higher, just like mankind is the lower being, rebels against the higher being who is God. Okay, what else? The promises. Okay, which promises? Okay, Abraham's promises. Very good. This is really important. What are the promises of Abraham? What are they? Okay. Make his name great and universal blessing. Good. And the second one says name great. And we're, I don't know if we'll get to the weeds on this, but if you trust me, uh, what, it, what that really means is a kingdom. And we will get to that. We're going to talk about 2 Samuel 7 probably tonight, but you know how that goes. Um, we'll talk about why making your name great is about kingdom. Yeah, so, so God promises to Abraham a, that he will make a nation of him, a kingdom, and eventually there will be universal blessing. Okay, good. Anything else from last week? Okay, good. So tonight what I want to do to start, I want to talk about saints. And so tonight I just want to share one thing about a saint that um, I don't know much about. But her feast day was Friday. No, it was yesterday. It was Tuesday. Um, so, <clears throat> one of the great things in the church is there are so many saints that you'll be like, I have no idea who that is. Because there's so many. Which I love that. So, I want to talk about St. Elizabeth of Hungary, very briefly. So, if I remember right, someone can Google it if they want. 13th century, I want to say. So St. Elizabeth of Hungary was married when she was like 14, which was common in that time. 
Uh, obviously, she marries the king. She be, she's a queen. Um, she had three children. Was a good mother. Her and her husband were both very devout Catholics. So they lived their life that way. They were very serious about their faith. They were not the casual, like, yeah, I'm Catholic. You know, I go to church every once in a while. They were, this is their life. Um, her husband dies, I think when she was 20. Um, I'm going to get some of the details probably wrong. But what really matters is who she was. Um, so what happened is during her lifetime, when her husband was still alive, she even then felt like God was calling her as a queen to serve the poor in a radical way. So one of the most important things about saints is that they aren't, like, saints sometimes can feel like fictional characters. It just feels like this kind of story that's out there. Elizabeth of Hungary was a real woman who lived a real life. She was married. She had real hopes, fears, Dreams, etc., etc. But anyway, so she becomes queen, and at some point she says, You know what? I am supposed to serve the poor. So she took a bunch of her castles that she had and she turned them into hospitals and homes for the sick. Which, have you guys ever been like, If I was a rich person, I would just like do this? Has anybody ever thought that? Like, I'd help the poor and I'd do this, right? I thought that. I, it's actually when you read when you meet people of wealth and they're generous that's rare it's actually a rare thing um, it's not easy it doesn't get easier like right now in your life where you're like oh if I just had more money I'd be more generous it doesn't get easier and I know because I am a wealthy priest <laughs> it's hard it's not it doesn't get easier I will promise you that um, but anyway, so St. Elizabeth did this. So she turned some of her castles into hospitals and homes for the poor and the sick. Um, her husband dies. She had three kids. And she completely gives her life to serving the poor. And eventually she becomes a member of the Franciscan movement. And she embraces poverty. And, and by the way, in the church's tradition... And I think this is just true as a human being. Um, how do I say this? Um, if you've never had gelato, it's pretty easy to give up gelato. If you've had gelato, it's almost impossible to give up gelato. It's that good. There's something in the church's tradition and, in, and just in the human kind of nature that once you've tasted some of these things, it's hard to give them up. And so there's a, there's a heroism to her where she gave up. She had had the best of life. She gave it up. And there's something incredibly inspiring there. But here's the central point. So St. Elizabeth died when she was 24. There's a lot of saints who did. St. Teresa of Lisieux did. Um, I don't know if I can name another one, but there are a bunch. But um, <clears throat> Here's what makes it important, and this is the central thing I want to give you about St. Elizabeth of Hungary, is that love will make you poor. Love will make you poor. 
And I think that's really important. So like sometimes I talk about this at weddings, and people who are married are like, Amen. <laughs> They're like, my wife and my kids, I am poor. And that's true. And that's that's actually really good. And that's that actually matters, but I mean it actually in a different way. Is that when you love someone, love by its nature makes you want to lose yourself. It makes you want to say, everything I thought was mine and it was important in my life. And like most of you, the way you will experience this is through marriage. That's the normal human way that people experience this. Is they love someone enough, and it's and more of what it's about usually is like when I was single, I desired, I just did my own thing. But I love you so much, I'll give that up. And when you have kids, even more so. When you have kids, right, every married person I've ever met who has children, they always say this. Like, when you have kids, kids are really expensive, so they, they make you poor financially. But, but they make you, like, <clears throat> before you were a parent, you made sure you had your eight hours of sleep. Your, your house was organized. Your life was organized. When you have kids, a good friend of mine who goes to church here, named Andy, he says, when you have kids, he says, everything I own is missing, broken, or sticky. <laughs> and I love that. I'm like, missing, broken, or sticky. And when you talk to people like that, you talk to moms and dads, they will always say, oh my gosh, my kids are driving me crazy. And love makes you poor. Love makes you poor. And everything in our culture, and you guys in RCIA, right, like, whether you're already Catholic or not, one of the, the central insights of Christianity that Jesus teaches us is that the world is always going to say, you want to be happy? Make life about you. Do what you want to do. Don't let other people speak to your life. Have control. Whatever. And what G Jesus says seven times in the Gospels, he says the one who seeks his own life will lose it. But the one who loses his life for my sake will find it. And I love that. And so St. Elizabeth of Hungary discovered that. She knew that somehow God had called her with everything she had to lose her life. And she did. And the, the great irony of that is that that's when we find happiness. If, we lose our, if you lose your life in a bad way, like that's not great. But if you lose your life because you love someone... And this is what sometime, you know, we'll get to like priesthood and we'll talk about priesthood and marriage and vocations. But this is, a, this is how people become priests and religious sisters is that <clears throat> it looks like you're just losing your life. And that sounds terrible. But the, the secret of the Christian is that the only way you ever find happiness is when you lose your life. Okay. Isn't that cool? Love that. Okay, so here we go. So tonight we're gonna, I always hope we're gonna cover a lot of ground. We'll see.
before we jump into the, we're going to, we're tracing salvation history and God's plan through time. So before we do that, any questions? On that subject of questions, just. Say again? On that subject or just any question? Any question. So, so I was doing a little research on St. Maximilian Kolbe. Yes. And I didn't really dive into it, but I found some like letters, some like beef between the Catholic Church and Freemasons. Yep. And I, my father's a Freemason. Um. So I was just kind of curious of you know what the history is on that or what, what that's all about. So Catholics and Freemasons. <clears throat> so um, I'm not an expert on the subject, but. This is one of those subjects where, like, if you go deep enough, you go down a rabbit hole. But there is a, a large amount of evidence that would say the Freemasons are not. If you go to a Freemason meeting, you're like, most of the people who go, they're like, hey, let's hang out and have a beer and help our community do something good. But a lot of the foundation around the Masons is very anti Catholic. Um, Again, you won't you won't find that when you just meet you meet someone who goes to Mason. They're just like that's crazy. But and I, I'm not an expert on this, but historically, um, there's a lot of history there where the Masons have been against Catholicism. Um, and so the Church, and you'll find documents about this. The, the 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 Masons really had a beef against the Catholic Church, and I don't I just don't know enough of the history to speak intelligently to that. Um, of course, it doesn't mean that everyone who joined the Masons is like a bad person or something like that. But in its foundations, there was something that said we're against Catholicism. So I don't. I have to look that up. But that's kind of a lame answer. But that's about all I got. Okay. Any other questions? Yeah. So in the Sunday Weekly email, yep, it comes out after. Um, it mentions November indulgences and. Mm-hmm. That for faithful departed, what are November? It doesn't have a clear definition. Of Easy question. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, so so very quickly, uh, we're going to touch on this when we talk about purgatory. Mm-hmm. So uh, the question was, in the email we send out after masses, there's a note about November indulgences for the faithful departed. So the church believes there's three parts to the church. Like, and <clears throat> we're going to talk a little bit, I think, tonight about this. Um, God wants to unite the human race. And last week, when we talked about the blessings of Abraham, the third blessing is universal. It's for everyone, everywhere. And the church believes there's three parts to the Catholic Church. And we call those the church um, militant. And the church... Um, Suffering and then the third is the church triumphant. And what that means is that in Christ, and we'll we'll see the same Paul talks about this all over the place, Jesus does as well, is that Last week, and we'll, we'll get to that in a second, but the church militant is the church on earth. 
That's us. And what that means, so for instance, in Ephesians chapter 6, St. Paul says that we're in a battle. You and I have a fight to fight, and we have a battle. But he says the battle, right, if you, if you meet a lot of Christians, the battle is that guy, right? Um, but that's not it. What St. Paul says in Ephesians 6, our battle is against the demonic. So that's, that's really where the church militant comes from, is we're, we're the church that's still fighting. Right? Like, I have to fight, and we all, and also, like my own nature, we talked about original sin, my passions and desires are at war with what I know is good. I know I'm supposed to love that person, but I just don't want to. I know I'm not supposed to lust, but it's really hard. I know I'm not supposed to be jealous, but I just am. There's a battle. And the battle is not other people. The battle is within me, and it's spiritual. So that's, that's us. The church suffering is the church in purgatory. We will go into depth about purgatory. When I know right now you're like, probably a lot of you like purgatory. <laughs> Convince me on that. I will. Okay, because I'm an arrogant jerk. But once you get it, I don't know how you... Purgatory is, like... It's not the best thing ever. That's what that would be. But, like, it's beautiful teaching. But we'll get to that. So the church in purgatory, and this is what that's about. The souls of the faithful departed. If someone's in heaven, and that's the church triumphant. So what the church is, the church is the, the people who are united to Christ. And there are all kinds of people who are united to Christ on earth, in purgatory, and in heaven. So when we pray for people who are dead, and that's the faithful departed, that's these people. And November, so November 1st, is the Feast of All Saints, where we celebrate heaven. November 2nd is the Feast of All Souls, which is where we pray for all the souls in purgatory. And we'll get to this in detail. We will talk about purgatory. But <clears throat> for right now, I'm just going to say, if you've ever asked someone to pray for you, which hopefully you have, you've said, man, like my life is just really hard right now. Would you pray for me? We believe that death does not separate us from the rest of Christians. You don't need to pray for anyone in heaven, right? Like, if St. John Paul II is not in heaven, I'm in big trouble. Um, and so the church doesn't, we don't pray for him because we believe he's in heaven. But if someone's not there yet, we can pray for them. Now we believe, and last point, because I could go on forever, as you know, we believe everyone in purgatory is going to heaven, everyone. And we also believe that they know that. But that they have to be purified before they can enter God's presence. And we can pray for that. So that, that's what that means. And we will treat that in depth when we get to, to that kind of section, which I don't know when that will happen. So that, I mean, indulgences is just... Thank you. Okay, an indulgence, an indulgence, and if you want a good scripture verse for this, uh, look at 2 Corinthians 3. But what an indulgence is about, an indulgence means, how do I explain this quickly? Um... You and I can suffer for the sake of others. Jesus died on the cross for the good of others. In 2 Corinthians 3 and many, many other places, 
St. Paul will talk about how I'm going through a hard time and I'm going to unite my prayers to Jesus for you. What we mean by an indulgence is something like that. I can offer my sufferings for the good of someone else. And there's more than that, but I just don't want to get into it right now because we, we will treat that. There's more to indulgences, but we'll get to that. Okay, any other questions? I have one yes. kind of leftover from last week, and I wasn't mm-hmm. going to ask, but then we're talking about heaven. But yep. I'm curious about what the Catholic Church's take is on people who lived in like modern times and were exposed to Christianity, so they don't have the whole like, oh, I lived in the church and church preached Thailand and didn't know about Jesus. Yep. But like, you know, were at like faithful in their own right as Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, but like, where are they in this grand scheme of things once they so here's the short answer. So again, and I always say we're going to cover this stuff, so I hope we do. Praise God. Um, but when we talk about, so there's a there's a fancy Christian word of justification, which is how, that word means how is someone made right before God. Um, so another way, but the easier way to say it is, how does someone go to heaven? So if we have people in the modern world who they encounter Christ, they didn't embrace him. Where do they stand in terms of are they going to heaven or not? So <clears throat> here's the, my quick answer on this. So we're going to, again, in detail, we'll do this much more in depth when we talk about justification. 30-second answer is this. I used to live right off of I-25 in my first church that I was a priest at. And <clears throat> imagine if, what's your name again? Laura. Laura. So Laura, you come to me and you say, hey, FB. I want to get across I-25. And I'm like, cool. There is a pedestrian bridge a quarter of a mile. You swap a quarter of a mile, pedestrian bridge. You say, yeah, yeah, I've seen that bridge. But what if I just want to run across I-25? And you might do that, right, Laura? Okay, maybe not. <laughs> but anyway, but if you did, if you were like, hey, I just want to run across I-25, here's the question, and this is the question you're asking. If, I, if you just want to run across I-25, is it possible that you could make it? Yes. Yep. Is it a good idea? No. So that's essentially what the Catholic Church believes about this, is that if someone, if someone said, comes to me and they say, Hey, FB, I want to go to heaven. I want to live forever. What I'm going to say to them, I'm going to say, there's a God who loves you. He died on the cross for you, and he told us how you get there. You believe in him. You surrender your life to him. You live a life of good works, right? You treat people justly. You avoid very serious sins. You live a good life. That's the bridge. And so I will spend my entire life saying, take the bridge. Why would you not take the bridge? But I do meet people who are like, I'm, I'm going to run. And my, my answer to that is, do I know that someone who wants to run across I-25 is not going to make it? No. God can do anything. So the Catholic stance is, if someone never became a Christian in this life, do I know they're in hell? No. And a lot of Christians will say they do. And that bothers me more than I can say. 
I don't know that anyone's in hell. I know hell is real. The New Testament teaches it. But anyway, the point is, is that um, God can do anything. And so what the church believes is that if someone makes it to heaven, if they make it, they make it because of Jesus. And the way he said, hey, if you want to make it to heaven, the way to do that, have faith, surrender yourself, live a good life. I also, and God, the Catholic Church is very important. Hear me right. People hear priests wrong all the time. <clears throat> I am not saying that I know this, but like if you ask me, not the Catholic Church, if you ask me, if someone says, and I've had people say this to me, where they're like, and Christians will say to me, oh, Gandhi's in hell, he wasn't a Christian. The Catholic Church does not have a position on that. I do not believe Gandhi's in hell. I'm not God. I don't know that. I have a very hard time believing it. Someone who lived their life serving others and like starving themselves for peace, I'm like, I'm like, okay, Jesus, you can't get to heaven without Jesus. But I'm like, I also have a hard time believing God sent and said, oh yeah, you're going to go to hell for all of eternity. In Catholicism, we don't have an official stance. We don't say either way, because we don't know. But Catholicism allows the principles. It says, take the bridge. But I'm not going to say Gandhi's resting in hell. I don't know. I'm not gone, only he can say, but I have a hard time believing that. Isn't that freaking awesome? I love that. All right, one last question, if anybody has one. We're moving on. Okay, so here we go. So <clears throat> this is the paradigm I want you to get. We did this last time. So um, the... The story of the Bible is a story of, and this is on your sheet, so the world is good. Right? Thank you. God made the world good, right? And if you meet people, even people you don't like, God made them good. There's something good about them. The world fell, right? And so Genesis, the Genesis 1 and 2... The world is good. In Genesis chapter 3, it fell. And then sin spreads like crazy. So you get Cain murders his brother Abel, and sin spreads like wildfire, and then it works all the way to becoming universal. And this is Genesis 6 through 11. And, right, and, and again, this doesn't mean, like, Christians are not supposed to look at other people and be like, I don't look around the world, I don't go to Starbucks and sit down and be like, <laughs> you sinners. <laughs> but what it means is something's wrong. Something's wrong. You would have to be crazy not to say that. Something is wrong. Everyone knows that. Watch the news for half an hour, and in fact... I would encourage you not to watch the news for half an hour because it will destroy your soul. 
I stopped watching the news with, after the election, and I feel like I'm a new human being. I'm like, wow, there is sunshine. Life is good. Thank you, Jesus. Right? <clears throat> okay. Universal. Sin spreads everywhere. And Genesis 12 is Abraham. Let's call him Abe. And what I want you to see this on your sheet, I only put a couple of, of quotes tonight, but on that, that blue arrow there, right? Um, there is a curse. So in Genesis 3, God, there's a curse that falls on the world because of sin. And if you don't understand this, I just, I, this is where I get, I'm going to get passionate tonight, and I'm going to do that probably every week. You will never understand the New Testament, ever. You will never understand it if you don't understand this. My, when I, as a priest, I'll tell you, the hardest people to deal with, if someone's like, people think that Christians struggle with sinners. No, we don't. You know who I struggle with? People who don't need God. People who are broken and come to me and they're like, FB, I'm effed up. And it happens every year in RCIA. Every year someone comes to me and they say, Father Brian, I am messed up. You don't get it. Like, you don't understand. Like, I'm, I'm messed up. I love those people. I am like, thank you. You get it. I have good news for you. The people that are hard are the people like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm great. I, don't, I mean, other people have problems. I don't, I don't have problems. I'm just good. I've just, you know, I'm driving. I'm driving my Subaru. I'm skiing. Dating the babes, you know. Just living life. Those people, I, I actually don't even know how to talk to. I try, right? I'm like, Mars trying. So the Christian story is a story of like you and I and I can't hit this enough. If you can't admit that you have a problem in your life, you will never be a Christian. It doesn't mean that you're a bad person. It doesn't mean that you're worse than other people. But if you can't admit that something's off, you'll never be a Christian. Because you have no need of Jesus. You will never need Jesus. You will have no need for him whatsoever because, like Father Gronsky used to say, Father Gronsky, who is, I'll talk about him a fair amount, <clears throat> amazing priest. If I can become half the priest that he was, I will have fulfilled my purpose in life. Father Gronsky would talk about California. And he was like, he's from California, well, he's from Jersey, but he spent a lot of time in California. He would always say, you know, in California, everyone's a god. And I went there on a road trip like, four years ago, hadn't been in a long time, and like, everyone drives a BMW. Like, I was amazing. I'm like, man, like, like, BMW is making a killing in California. Everyone drives a BMW. Everyone is beautiful. Everyone has perfect teeth. They're all smiling. And, and Gronsky was talking about the gods of California. And Christianity forces you to ask a question and to face yourself and to say, something wrong with Brian Larkin. I've never done crack. I'm thinking about it. 
<laughs> I've never killed anybody. I've never done any like these huge big sins. But if you can't admit something's wrong, right? Okay, so the world's broken. This is not just like here's the outline of the story. If you if this is not your story, you you might as well give up on coming to RCIA. This is my story. This is me. I know I'm good. I know that God made me good. But I also know that I'm broken. I know that. I am insecure. I'm jealous. I have hatreds. I have lusts. I have envies. I have a love of money that I shouldn't have. I'm good, but I'm broken. Okay, have I beat a dead horse? Yes. Okay, that's universal, right? And the third promise of Abraham on your sheet, the third promise of Abraham, um, I guess he's in right there, the blessing and the curse. Abraham is God's answer to the fall. Christianity is not just about going to heaven. Christianity is about how God wants to make this world right. That's what it's about. Okay, so there's the three promises to Abraham. And last week we talked a little bit about how in Genesis 11, right, there's the Tower of Babel. They want to make a name for themselves. But God gives a name to Abraham. And so Abraham, and this, this is critical. When you hear Abraham, think Israel. Abraham is, do you ever wonder, and we've talked about this, okay, God called Israel, why not Canada? Right, and, and, and then the point is this. God didn't choose Israel to be like, you guys are my favorite. You're the best. The whole point, if you learn how to read the Bible, the whole point is that God chose Israel not so they could be close, because God loves to work through people. He loves to work through people. Okay, so let's read a couple of these quotes. So we're going to start with the second one. So, N.T. Wright, you're going to hear me quote him a lot. N.T. Wright is kind of a big deal. So if you're a nerdy, like, Catholic or a Christian, in my kind of world, N.T. Wright is, is broadly considered the most important scripture scholar in the world. He's not Catholic. I think I mentioned this before. He, um, he taught it. This is like where I want to impress you, you know? So he taught at Oxford. He taught at Cambridge. He teaches now at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. He is the most important scripture scholar alive today. He's not Catholic, he's an Anglican. So the second quote, so the point of the covenant, big word. Why does God make these covenants? What's the big deal? Why, the, why does the covenant matter? The point of the covenant was that God would bless the whole world through Abraham's family. Let's just pause really quick. One of the biggest critiques I hear about religion, and let's just get real here. In the modern world, I hear people say, okay, 
um, Buddhists think that they're right, Muslims think they're right, Mormons think they're right, Catholics, Protestants, and whatever group you're a part of, they think everybody else is going to help. You ever heard that? This means yes. This means no, or you can just stare at me. That might be true of some of those groups. It is not true of Catholicism. It is not true of Christianity. Certain Christians, I would argue, have distorted the Christian story. They've distorted it. And I hear this all the time. You watch secular news media, you watch certain TV shows, whatever, and they're going to say, and it's a cop-out, by the way, because here's what they do is they say, they don't want to follow God. They don't want to change their life. They don't want to say, I have to change my life. I have to go follow God. I've got to give up X, Y, and Z. They'd rather just sit on their couch and live the way they want to live. And they say, it's all BS anyways, because everyone who's religious disagrees with everyone else. Okay, so this is why this is so important. The point of the covenant was always that God would bless the whole world through Abraham's family. This is a little technical, but the point, if you're coming from a Protestant tradition, Romans 3 is big. The point of Romans 3, 1 through 8 is not a general discussion about God's attributes and human failure. Likewise, the unfaithfulness of the Israelites is not their lack of belief. So what, what N.T. Wright is talking about here is in Romans 3... Paul's going to talk a lot about faith, as he will in other places. And the normal read that Christians get to that is they say, look, it's all about faith. Everybody else is screwed. It's about faith. Have faith. Have faith. And what N.T. Wright is saying here, who is not a Catholic, is he's saying, that's not what Romans 3 is about. The point of Romans 3, 1 through 8 is not a general discussion about God's attributes and human failure. Likewise, the unfaithfulness of the Israelites is not about their lack of belief. The point, this is huge, the point is that God has promised to bless the world through Israel, and Israel has been faithless to that commission. This is the gospel. The gospel is not, I always say this, like, when my older brother, his four kids, and Claire Jane's in high school, which blows my freaking mind, when Sean says to Claire Jane, hey, I want you to take care of your siblings when I'm away, it's not because Sean doesn't love his other three children. So God didn't choose Israel because he's like, Have a cookie. <laughs> That's not it. That's not the Bible. The Bible is, I have chosen you to be a servant. And your job is to go serve everyone else. So Israel failed in that. So the church, Christians and Catholics specifically, a lot of Catholics don't know this, but this is Catholic teaching. Catholic teaching it's not that Catholics are better than other people. It's that God has worked in those of us who are Catholic for the sake of those who aren't. 
So if you come to the Lord, you, you pray when you say this. I say all the time, I'm like, when, I, when God called me a priesthood, he was not like, Brian, you're pretty cool. Let's hang out. <laughs> he didn't do that. And a lot of people think priests are like, oh, like Father Brian was chosen because look at his hair. <laughs> That's not what a priesthood is. All through the Bible, what God does is he, he doesn't choose actually the best. He chooses the most lowly to serve others. And the church and the world, the whole point is not that Catholics are better, it's that Catholics are called to bring good news to everyone else. Okay, let's keep going. So halfway through that paragraph, God has made a plan to save the whole world. Israel is the linchpin of this plan, but Israel has been unfaithful. It should say wrath, but it says wath. <laughs> That's awesome. Wath is now required. If the world's sin is to be dealt with and a worldwide family created for Abraham is a faithful... Oh, it's supposed to be what, sorry. Not wrath, what. So what is now required if the world's sin is to be dealt with and a worldwide family created for Abraham is a faithful Israelite. That is what God has now provided. So that's what I want you to get from this, this story of the covenant is that this is a story about the whole world. And today this is very poignant. The modern world that we live in, one of the dominant ideas right now is there is no story for all humanity. One of the things that comes out of this is moral relativism. Right? Like, that's true for you, but don't, it's not true for me. So maybe it's wrong for you to do that, but not me. Don't, and don't impose your truth on me. That's moral relativism. God bless you. Um, modern, modernity believes there's not a story for all of us. There's your story, there's your story, there's my story. But there is no such thing as our story. Christianity believes there is such a thing as our story. And that, that's what the whole Bible is about. Okay, let's pause. That's already a lot of information. Questions? No? Okay, I don't know if that's good or bad. <laughs> yes? Uh, you always talk about like, how important scripture is and dive into it, but have you always been like that? Have you always been able to interpret it and understand it? Great question. So the question is, like, like I always talk about how important scripture is, but have I always been like that? Have I always been able to dive into scripture and interpret it? The answer is no. And so, <clears throat> maybe a simple answer would be this, is that um, you have to get to a place where you're like, is Scripture really like relevant? Is it a story about all of us? Is it about my life? And so, so maybe one way I would answer this is like, so Boulder, which I love dearly, 
I don't fit in too well there, but somewhat. Um, so a number of times, but one time in particular, I was in my collar like this, and I went to Boulder. I was on Pearl Street Mall, beautiful summer day, um, kind of like heaven, right? Um, but I was on Pearl Street, got a cup of coffee, and I was just reading. And when you're in your collar, you just never know what's going to happen. It's like a box of chocolates. Right? Um, and someone came up to me and they said, um, and I, they, were, they were in a Protestant of some domination, I'm not sure which. And I forget what their question was, but they, they, they wanted to talk to me. And I said, okay, let's talk. And I forget what the question was, but we talked about some subject. And um, in terms of interpretation of the Bible, this is so cool because this person, he was a guy and he was like, what do you think about this? And I said, well, basically, here's what I think. Here's my five-second answer. And he said, well, you know, I think that's wrong. In shocker. And, and I was like, well, okay, well, why do you think that's wrong? And, you know, of course, it wasn't exactly like this. I forget all the details. But at some, whatever point he said to me, he said, well, my pastor this Sunday said to me that this is what that passage is about. And... I'm, I'm a jerk, as you know. And I was like, I was like, I knew I had him. And I was like, I was like, okay. And like, of course the goal should never be to win an argument. The goal should be, what's the truth? But I said to him, I said, you know, well, that's interesting that your pastor thinks that. Your pastor disagrees with St. Augustine, with St. Irenaeus, with St. Thomas Aquinas, with St. Jerome, with St. Ambrose. You know, and I, and I was like, look, like, any one of us can be wrong, we're all human beings, and I can be wrong. But what happened for me, and I guess, and I'm praying I'm answering your questions to come back at me, I became convinced that this story wasn't just somebody else's story, but it was my story. And I became absolutely enamored with the scriptures. And the, the deeper you go, the more there is to learn. And the church's tradition, and so what happens is, it's just so cool, it's like, you read a passage, you know, you're reading Romans 8, and you learn later on, if, if you're a nerd like me, they're like, oh my gosh, St. Augustine in the 5th century was reading the same passage. And here's what he says about it. And so I'm like, probably way off topic, but I, I don't know if this is getting anywhere near what you're actually asking, but come back at me. I just mean, I try to read stuff, and like dive into it and I sometimes like have no idea what I'm reading or Good, like okay. trying to understand it. It's not like I need a kid version of the Bible. Yes, thank you. Thank you for your humility. I love yeah. that. We all do. We all need a kid's version of the Bible. Like and so what he says like pick up the Bible and like what the hell am I reading? Um, I usually say H E double hockey sticks in case there's kids at home. But the point is, yeah, that's true. So a great example of that is Acts chapter eight. Um, so in Acts eight there's a story of one of the first deacons of the church, Philip, and a eunuch. You guys know what a eunuch is? It's a little racy. Um, yeah, I'm so ridiculous. I don't know why I'm that way. But it's kind of fun. So um, a eunuch is someone in the ancient world when you had kings, they had the royal harem, and a eunuch was someone who, like the king usually, they would castrate a eunuch and they would watch over the harem. 
And so the king knew that the eunuch was not messing around with the women. Jesus, we'll, we'll get to this when we talk about celibacy because Jesus references eunuchs in Matthew 19. But we'll get to that. But anyway, Acts 8, there's Philip. Let's call him Phil. And the eunuch. And here's what happened. So, so none of us know. And I just want to, I just want to assure you, like what you're saying, that is my story, and that's every person. The Bible is really, really difficult. And so, in Acts eight, what happens is the Ethiopian eunuch is on a chariot, and he's he's riding on his chariot, and he's he's reading a scroll in that books. He's reading a scroll from Isaiah chapter fifty three. And, and let me give you a little bit of confidence here. So um, I don't know that I can actually do it because I'm out of pop culture now. Um, but here's, here's one from like my, my like high school years. If I said, I'll tell you what I want, what I really, really want, you would be like, so tell me what you want, what you really, really want, right? Nope. So, yeah, you would do that. <laughs> right? And so you were like, oh, man, I love the Spice Girls. Oh, I just want to be one. Um, the point is that with pop culture, we all know that. You know, and like, um, we were talking about, today I made a couple of the staff members watch the Chris Farley SNL skit where he's like, when you're living the van down by the river. <laughs> if you haven't seen that, you can't be Catholic. Um, everyone knows that because it's in our blood, you know? And the way scripture works is just like that. So we live in a world that's like, if I say, hey, when you're living in a van, you're like, down by the river. In Jesus' world, people say, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the person next to you knows, like, oh, Psalm 22. And we'll get to that, too. They know that. And so it's really hard for us to enter into that, but I just promise you, I was there. I didn't know what the difference between the Old Testament or the New Testament was. I didn't know any of this. And people say to me all the time, FBI could never know scripture the way you do. Now, I've been blessed. I will just be honest with this. I got to go to graduate school. I am a priest. I read a lot of books about scripture. But I will tell you right now, the, the overwhelming majority of what I will teach you in this class, I knew before I ever went to go study to be a priest. The overwhelming majority. And I did it, I learned it, because I loved it. And if you love it, you'll learn it. So one, one book, and we're never getting anywhere tonight, it's your fault. Um, and we'll get to Acts 8, I'll explain that too. Um, one book, we have it upstairs in our little bookshelf, um, it's called Walking with God. And that's is by Dr. Tim Gray and um, Jeff Cavins. Um, name drop here. Tim Gray, kind of my mentor in scripture. He's kind of a big deal. Tim Gray is the only one who ever makes me feel like I don't know anything about scripture. He's, <laughs> he's brilliant. But anyway, um, I had to learn. And so that's what Acts 8 is about. So in Acts 8, the Ethiopian eunuch is reading Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is a prophecy about the crucifixion. It happens 500 years, roughly, before Jesus is crucified, and when you read it, it will blow your freaking mind. 
The Ethiopian eunuch is reading it, and he has no idea what he's reading, as any of us would. Like, you're reading, like, and so he asks Philip, who's one of the first deacons of the church, he says, who is this author talking about? Is he talking about himself or someone else? And here's one of the, one of the wonderful things about being Catholic, is I'm not actually as smart as you think I am. All I do is steal from people who went before me. That's all I do. And so Philip says to the Ethiopian eunuch, he says, he preaches to him Christ. And, that's, and so the church says, if you're going to read the Bible, you need someone to help you. And so when we get to some other Reformation things, when Martin Luther, if you come from a Protestant background, what Martin Luther said in the 16th century is, all you need is this, and I'm just going to re- open randomly. Should we do Old Testament or New? Old. Old? Okay. Um, it is not fitting for a fool to live in luxury, much less for a slave to rule over princes. Okay, I actually think I know what that means. Right? I'm like, a fool who lives in luxury, like, it's called a rock star. They lose all their money. Okay. Um, there's plenty of passages like that. Um, let's see. Thus says the Lord, like the bad figs which are so bad they cannot be eaten, so will I treat Zedekiah the king of Judah. Um, I don't know. <laughs> you can open up, and the Bible, my point you get it is like, it's so complex. And what Luther said is all you need is this. And the Catholic tradition says, no, that's not true. It, it, it requires an interpreter, so... Long answer to a short question. You don't have to know everything. What I'm going to try and do is give you the basics, and then hopefully I'm going to say, hey, go learn more. Go learn more. I've spent the last 20 years reading more and more. Do we have any internet chatter? No. More Okay, so let's, let's try to finish up the story here. There's, there's two other big things I want to do tonight. What time is it? It's 7.30. Should we take a break? What do you think? You break? Honestly? Raise your hands. Who wants a break? Honestly? You can be honest. You have to go to the bathroom. Feel free. But let's just keep rolling. Okay, no break. You weren't honest. No break. <laughs> okay. So Abraham is promised by God. Right? That he will be a nation. Well, we did this last week. He'll have a kingdom. And he'll have universal blessing. That happens under Moses, David, and Jesus. Under Moses, the Israelites become a nation. Under David, they receive a kingdom. And under Jesus, there's a universal blessing. Okay, this is the outline of the Old Testament. So, a couple other key things I just want to hit here. So, do I want to hit that or not? All right, here's your question. We're taking a vote. You cannot not vote. Here are your two options. We're either going to talk about how Jesus recreates the world, and he's going to be the, he's going to fulfill all three of these, which probably, well, I'm just going to say, we'll leave it there. That's one. The other option is we could start with 
why do we not follow all the rules of the Old Testament? So, who wants to jump to how Jesus fulfills all three of these and everything comes to fulfillment in him? Um, raise your hand. Okay, you have to vote. There's like six of us, okay? Who wants to do why we don't follow all the Old Testament rules? Okay, that, who didn't vote? Okay, so Old Testament rules, so here we go. That one won. We'll get to this. We will do this. Okay, so in the Exodus story, what happens, and this is, this is the key. So, and we're going to hit this big time when we do sacraments. God loves you before you do anything. So in the Exodus story, God's people are in slavery in Egypt. And what happens is they're, they're slaves. And again, we will talk about, we're going to see in a big way how this is the Christian story. And by the way, when you, when you get this, if you understand Exodus, you will understand the Catholic vision of what it means to be a Christian. So, so God's people are slaves. And then in um, Exodus 12, you get the Passover. In Exodus 14, there's the Red Sea. So they cross the Red Sea in Exodus 14. Um, and then in Exodus chapter 19, they arrive at Mount Sinai. Okay, so here we go. So here's, here's the key to this. So they get to Mount Sinai, and God enters into covenant with them. And that covenant is sealed in Exodus 24. You don't have to know the numbers. It doesn't really matter. Someday when you're a Bible nerd like me, you can remember the numbers. It doesn't really matter. This is just the story. So they enter into the covenant. So let me ask this. So they enter the covenant, and um, one thing I should put between here is in 20 is the Ten Commandments. So next year, chapter 20 is the same thing. Yeah. When you say covenants, are you talking promise? Like so it's, it's a culmination of it. So what happens is in, so like think of like a, when you get married. Are you married? So when you got married, right, with your husband, it's like there's a certain amount of like, I promise to love you. And let me just, be, I'm just going to cut to the chase. It'll be graphic. It's, the, the analogy would be, this is, the Ten Commandments is like your vows. I will live this way. And God says, I will be your God. You will be my people. And Israel says, I will live this way and you will be my God. 24 is the is like sex. And obviously that's a metaphor. In Exodus 24, there's a ritual. But it's not just like I made a promise. What happens is they there's a ritual whereby they become family. And in Catholic theology, when you consummate your marriage, it's like, hey, I promised myself to you, and I meant it, and that's binding. 
And what I said with words, now that's sealed with our bodies. Which is so beautiful. I freaking love that. Um, that's, that's the analogy with covenant. That's what I mean by it. So that, that's, that's what happens in Exodus 24. Um, so what happens is uh, they have the Ten Commandments, and then um, they have a couple other laws. So from Exodus 24 to 31, they have laws about worship, And they have some basic, like, specification on moral law. But it's very light. If you read that section of the Bible, like, when God enters into covenant with his people, there's not a lot of laws. Okay, does anybody know what happens in chapter 32? Very good. That's right. 32 is the golden cap. And here's why this matters. This is so cool. And you'll get this. Paul, by the way, this is not just Father Brian, like, came up with this cool scheme. It's like, check out, like, these chapters. I'm like, man, like, look how it works out. This is not me. St. Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter 3. Um, but here's what it is. So, and this, to break it down, I promise, tonight I feel like I'm a little heady, Sorry, I do that sometimes. Just tell me, like, throw something at me and be like, FB, knock it off. Bring it down a little. Here's what it is. Remember when you were a teenager and your mom and dad were like, hey, we trust you. Do not betray our trust. Remember that? Uh huh. Yeah. And you're going to say that to your kids. You're like, we trust you. Do not betray our trust. Right? So what did you do? You betrayed their trust. Right? I love that. Yeah, that's what you do, right? That's what teenagers do. So what happens is when God starts his covenant, being a Christian isn't that complex. You know what you're supposed to do. You know how you're supposed to live. None of you in this room is like, if the I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to steal. Right? It's like it's basic stuff. But what happens is so your parents said to you, they said, okay, Brian, your mother and I are going to Vancouver. This is not a true story, by the way. I know you wish it was. <laughs> um, but, but my dad, you know, would say like, hey, okay, Brian, your mother and I are going to Vancouver. We're trusting you because we know you've been raised right to, to be, you know, well-behaved while we're gone. Risky business habits, right? Most of you are too young for that. You throw the ultimate rager. One, I, we had, one of my friends, Adam, in high school did that, and it was just like, he did everything, but he had one piece of evidence he didn't clean up. Right? And what happens after, so after you break all their trust, what happens? What do your parents do? What? Somebody said it. 
They lay down the law. Before Exodus 32, there are very few laws. After Exodus 32, there are very many. And most of those laws that you think of about the Old Testament that are kind of weird, where it's like, dudes, don't ever shave your beard. And you're like, don't eat this kind of animal, like kosher law. And all these laws, most of those come from the book of Deuteronomy. Okay, here's the magical, here's a Greek phrase for the night. If you get, if you went, if you get this right, like, you just like, we're going to be buds. Does anybody know, Deuteronomy is a Greek word. Does anybody know what Deuteronomy means? It's really hard, I know, I'm like, does anybody know what I'm thinking now? Okay, so let's break it up. What does Deuteronomy mean? That one's easier. What does Deuteronomy mean? If you had to guess. I know you don't know Greek. Deutero, like duty? what? Duty? No, not duty. Good guess. Deutero means second, and no mas you won't get, but it's where we get the word in English for norm. No mas is the Greek word for law. That's what Deuteronomy means. Deuteronomy is the second law. And what it is, is if I had a daughter, and I said, honey, we've raised you well, I love you so much, and she says, dad, I want to go to a party. I'm like, are there going to be boys there? And she's like, yeah, but dad, like, you know I'm strong. I'm like, honey, I trust you. And my daughter calls me at 3 in the morning and says, dad, I can't drive home. And I pick her up and she's disheveled and God knows what happened. You better believe there's going to be a second law. This is so cool. Here's 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 the critical point. This is why this is this is why Christians some laws never change, and there are some laws that we do not follow. This is the answer to this. And again, this is not me. This is Galatians chapter three. This is Saint Thomas Aquinas. This is Saint Augustine. This is the tradition of the church. Here's why. It's because when Jesus comes. And he comes in the, in, in the New Testament, Galatians 4.4. 4. Galatians 4.4, 4, St. Paul says that the Son of God came in the fullness of time. The Greek is kairos. Remember the Incredibles? Right in the island, it's called kairos. That's a Greek word. It means sacred time. Kronos, or oh, is it Kronos? Kronos. Chronos is like just like one second after the other. That's Chronos. Chronology, that's Chronos. Kairos is sacred time. It's God's time. Galatians 4.4 4 says that the Son of God came in the Kairos. He came in the fullness of time, in, the, in God's time. And here's the thing. is When Jesus comes, he starts breaking laws. And the Jews are super angry at him because they say, why are you breaking that law? Guess what laws Jesus breaks? The second law. The Ten Commandments? Jesus never breaks them. 
And here's, and if you, if you come from a, a background of this, here's one more like way that this is, just to show you this isn't just Father Brian making this up. So in Matthew 19, again, the, um, the Sadducees come to Jesus and they say, okay, um, divorce. They say, why, like, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Does anybody remember what did Jesus say? Right, so he says, he says, out of the hardness of your heart, Moses, guess who wrote the book of Deuteronomy? Moses. Out of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but, remember the rest of the phrase? He says, but from the beginning, it was not so. He said, if you divorce your wife, you forfeit a kingdom. Right. Yeah, that's true. And he does that. He says, if you divorce your wife, you, you force her. And if she marries another, mm -hmm. she commits adultery. But here's the key to that passage, and this is the paradigm. Jesus is not making stuff up and saying this is bad. What he's saying is, when you were a teenager and your parents had a 10 o'clock curfew, curfew for you, was your 10 o'clock curfew good or bad? Yeah, it's kind of hard to answer, right? It was good for a time. Is 1001 evil? In my household, it is. <laughs> right? No, 1001 isn't evil, but God is a good father. And this is the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is that from day one, the answer to Genesis 3 is God's people. The answer to a fallen, broken world is God's people. But what happens is if God's people aren't mature enough, they're not grown up enough yet to be grown up, they say, okay, you know what God says, you're not ready yet. Right? A lot of you ladies, like if I was a father, I know how men work. If I was a, a father and my daughters were like, Dad, and they're 14, I want to date, there's this really cute boy, I'd be like, <laughs> where's my shotgun? Right? I would be that way. I absolutely would. Does that mean I don't ever want them to marry? Of course not. In fact, I, I really want them to marry and I want them to find the man that's right. So the Bible was happening in, the, in Ephesians chapter 1. What St. Paul says, he says, there was one plan, and that's what I'm trying to drive home tonight. God had a plan from the beginning. And the plan was not just like everything sucks. Let's take you to heaven. That's not the plan. The plan was the world's good. Sin broke it. The answer to this universal brokenness is the universal blessing. And God promises all the way back in Genesis 12 that the universal curse of Genesis 3 is going to be undone by the universal blessing that comes through one of Abraham's descendants. The New Testament, it says that that's what happened in Jesus Christ. And because that blessing has now come, that second law is not, it was never evil, but its time has passed.
Yep. You know. Yes. I know. Okay. What bond have I broken? Have I broken one and two? <laughs> You've broken eight and three. So, so what we need to do, and if anybody else, in every year, by the way, we have, I don't know, five or six people like that who are coming in. What we need to do is get you an annulment. And for most people, that's a little scary. But you know me now, right? So you come see me, and you and I walk through that together, and we make things right. So an annulment, what Jesus essentially teaches in the New Testament, is that divorce is not immoral. Divorce is impossible. That's what Jesus teaches. Now, and that usually freaks people out, so hang with me. Here's the point. So a, co a covenant, marriage is a covenant, a covenant has contractual aspects to it. It has parts of contract. What an annulment says, so if I enter into a, a contract and I said, if I talk to someone, I'm like, okay, I will pay you $500, you pay my house. They agree, we sign, we sign the line, done. Something goes wrong, and we find out later on that the person that entered, that signed that contract was 17. What, that, what happens is that contract is annulled, right? So what an annulment is, is the church says there are a number of things that must be there for a marriage to be valid. It doesn't mean that anyone had bad intentions. It doesn't mean they're bad people. It means none of that. What it does mean is that there was something that should have been there in the contract that wasn't. So, come see me. Does that answer the question? No, but I'll come see you. <laughs> come see me, and that, that's what we'll do. Okay, other questions? Stephanie, we have internet questions tonight. Is there an understanding of the law in the Old Testament about making an adulterous drink bitter water? Numbers 527. There's an easy question. Numbers 527. I know that passage. I don't think I have an easy answer to this, but I'll try. Um, Basically what's happening here is in Numbers is God is giving us some kind of proof for if, if someone has committed adultery. But let's look at this. Okay, so Numbers 527. Verse 25, the priest shall take the cereal offering of jealousy out of the woman's hand. And here, here's what I would just emphasize in this is that um, this is actually a really hard passage for us to understand, but here's the caveat. In most ancient cultures, if there's a suspicion of a woman committing adultery, she's guilty. End of story. In Numbers, uh, what is this? Numbers 5, there's actually a punishment for the man if he was. Um, the priest shall take the cereal offering of jealousy. What means the husband's jealous? He thinks his wife is not being faithful. Uh, the priest shall take the cereal offering out of, the, of jealousy out of the woman's hand and shall wave the cereal offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. The priest shall take a handful of the cereal offering as its memorial portion 
and burn it on the altar, and afterwards shall make the woman drink the water. And when he has made her drink the water, if she has defiled herself and has acted unfaithfully against her husband, the water that brings curse shall enter in her and cause bitter pain, health problems. Um, So, really quick, whoever sent that online, come talk to me. That's a really good question. I don't know that I have the best answer right now about, like, all this, but I will say, so there's a great book. If you want a book on this kind of stuff, um, there's a book I read this year. It's called, Is God a Moral Monster? And it's a great book. And, if, and what it's going to do is going to take... Some of you have those hard questions about, like, how did God allow this or that? Those are great questions. And maybe next week I'll just brush up on this because I don't have a great answer right now, just very honestly. Um, and we'll touch on that. But if you want a good book on that, um, I forget the author right now, but, um, but I'll bring that book next week. It's a great book, and it's going to just go head on into those things. One quick thing is that... Maybe two points... One is that it's heavily debated whether or not these laws were ever meant to be strictly followed. Scripture scholars fall, like debate that heavily. But if Jesus, and the whole paradigm we've been talking about tonight, is that Jesus comes to restore all things, right? He comes to, to restore God's original plan and to make things as they should be. How does, how does Jesus treat women who have committed adultery? Not who just are accused of it, but who actually have. With mercy and kindness. And so the, the, the most obvious example is Mary Magdalene, but also in John chapter 4, Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at the well who has been caught in adultery and she's had seven husbands. It's really, it's really cool stuff. And so I, I think there's still a really good question over asked that about Numbers 5. It's a, it's a legitimate, very good question. Steph, will you remind me to write that down? I'll try to yes. hit that better next week. But I will say the paradigm still holds is that sometimes, like, a parent gives a law and they say, you can't date boys right now. Um, this is more extreme, of course. But does that mean the parent doesn't want their daughter to date boys? No, it means right now this isn't the right time. But that's, I know I haven't answered that, and we're gonna, I'm going to come back next week with a better answer. You actually like this. Uh, yes. <laughs> Paul Copin. What? Okay. Oh, Paul Copin. Thank you. 7.55. 7.55. Okay. Um, debating... Um, okay, next week, remind me. Will someone please write this down? And next next Wednesday, will you remind me to start with this? Next week, we are starting with Second Samuel seven. Just write that down. Remind me, Second Samuel seven, because really quick, with that, that was such a good question, and I just want to show you John four really quick, and we're gonna have their last five minutes. Okay. So John chapter 4 is super beautiful. 
So in John 4, Jesus meets a Samaritan woman um, at a well. Okay. So here's the thing. So what we believe about Jesus is all of this really happened, but it runs much deeper. Jesus fulfills all of these things, and he sets things right. So, in John 4, so, there's a woman at the well. Verse 7, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? And John explains, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Samaritans are considered half-breeds to Jews and betrayers of the truth in the time of Christ. Um, and we'll get to that in a second of why. Um, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself and his sons and his cattle? Now notice really quick, the woman in John 4 the woman thinks that Jesus is talking about literal water. She's like, dude, where's your bucket? You didn't have a bucket. And this happens a lot in John's gospel, is that Jesus is going to take natural symbols. And what he's going to do, and like, this happens on the faith. People are like, if God loves us, why doesn't he just feed everybody? And what Jesus is going to say is he's going to say, there's a hunger in your soul that's much deeper than earthly food. That's what he's going to do here. Okay. Jesus says, verse 13, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. The water that I shall give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Now here's the thing, there's a couple cool things. The woman comes at midday, um, and it's in uh, verse 6, it was the sixth hour. Jews count hours from 6 a.m., so it's noon. In Israel, when we all go there together, you will know you do not go to draw water at noon. It is 400 degrees and noon. That's how we do it. Everyone goes draw water first thing in the day. So, this woman has had five husbands. Why is she going to draw water at noon? She's an outcast. She's an exile. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And he whom you now have 
is not your husband. This you said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. So he goes on, and there's, there's a couple of really cool things here. So the background of this is Jeremiah 2. And in Jeremiah 2, God says this, if I can get there. Jeremiah 2.13, he says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. So the woman at the well is talking about literal water. And Jesus is like, you're thirsting for so much more. And God, like this is a huge point for all of us, is that God's like, all of us spend our whole lives looking for fulfillment. I want this, I want more. And God says, my people have committed two evils. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water. And Jesus says in John chapter 2, anyone who drinks the water I will give him will never thirst. It will become for him a fountain of living water. Rolling up to eternal life. And they have hewn out empty cisterns for themselves which hold no water. So, this becomes an analogy in the, in the scripture for we just want to be loved and we want fulfillment and we want it so bad and we look for it everywhere except for the one place that can give it. And I know I'm over time so I'm going to finish with this. We, usually when I teach John 4 we spend an hour on this passage. But the last thing and this is so cool. So um, in Samaria, so what happens is in Israel, um, that's bad. I just have, in Egypt, right, we have the Red Sea, and here's, here's Israel. So Jerusalem, the Dead Sea, Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, um, and what happens is that Jerusalem's like here. Samaria is like this area right there. And so in Samaria, they break away, and there's, there's a long history here. It's in First Kings, if you want to look it up. Second Kings 17. 2 Kings 17 is the background of this. What happens is when Israel is conquered by the Assyrians, they intermarry them with all these other nations, and that's what ancient cultures did in empires. Because if, if, like, if you and I are like, I love America, I love it so much, I miss home, and we were conquered, and we got sent to Canada, and the Canadians took us over, the Canadians, if they, inter they made us marry with other Canadians, our kids would not to have as strong of an identity as Americans as we do. So they force the Jews to intermarry. That's who the Samaritans are. 
So, and then what happens is they bring their gods with them, and the, the Samaritans, this is so cool, I freaking, I can't believe I'm sharing this because I'm like, feel like you should have to work harder for this. <laughs> this is so cool. The Samaritans, guess how many, they worshiped kind of the same God, but they, they, they had one God really, they had other ones too, but there was one main God. And guess how many like shrines there were of this one God in Samaria? Five. This woman has had how many husbands? Five. Does anybody know who the God of Samaria is? It's a common name in the Bible. Man. Gold star. Baal, or Baal, I don't know how you pronounce it. You just kind of be confident. Um, does anybody know what Baal means? Aramaic, anybody know? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Baal means husband. And Baal is the storm god in Canaanite and in Sumerian religion. And so Baal is the god of storms. Elijah is the one who proves that he's not a god, doesn't even exist. Um, Baal is the storm god. And there's a Hebrew wordplay here calling for this woman to find a true husband who will love her. And in Jewish religion, Yahweh is the groom. And the Canaanites, this woman's a real woman who's thirsting for real love. And she has dug out, right, these empty cisterns, these wells that can't hold water. But there's one call to one who will truly love her. Um, and so this is, I just love that passage because it speaks to the history of Israel. It speaks to us and that question that came in online of like, what does God really want to do? Is it like all of us, every one of us in this room, the only ones who want to love someone and we want to be loved. And not in a shallow way, but in a very deep, very fulfilling way. And marriage is so good and it's from God, but ultimately all of us can only find that in God himself. Next week, 2 Samuel 7. Are we meeting, are we doing it online? Quick, quick, quick survey. It's Thanksgiving next week. Yeah. We're, we're going to do a class. We'll either do it just over Zoom or how many people would come if we did, if we opened up McAdam Honest? Okay. It's okay if you're not. Okay, Steph, you make the call. Yeah, I think you do it. Okay. You okay, well. You can always watch it back later, but I think we just do it. So we'll have class this week. If you miss it, I will judge you in my heart. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But you can watch it later online. Thanks for bearing with me. I know I went over. Glory be. Oh, sorry. Oh, Glory be to, glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All right, everybody. Thank you. See you soon. And if not, have a great Thanksgiving. Also, if anyone's interested, SB and I started a podcast, so please go.
go online and register for this 